Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Vergiss alles, was du über Arbeit weißt. Denn jetzt kommt das Update für dein Unternehmen. Mit Firmenfitness von Urban Sports Club. Profitiere von gesunden und ausgeglichenen Mitarbeitenden. Und Stress gehört ab sofort der Vergangenheit an. Egal ob Fitness, Schwimmen, Yoga oder Wellness. So geht moderne Arbeit heute. Mit Urban Sports Club. Erfahre jetzt mehr auf firmenfitness.urbansportsclub.com Wir präsentieren die neue Word-Uhr, Teil der Diesel Metamorph-Kollektion. Konzipiert mit Virtual Reality Technologie, um ein einzigartig organisches und futuristisches Erscheinungsbild zu schaffen. Mit einem Armbanddesign inspiriert von Reptilienwirbeln, einschließlich eines Gehäuses aus goldfarbenem Edelstahl. Zusätzlich können Sie exklusive NFTs für Ihre Sammlung freischalten, die Ihnen den Zugang zu einer virtuellen Welt ermöglichen. Besuchen Sie de.diesel.com, um die Metamorph-Kollektion zu entdecken. Hello, I'm Claudia Hammond and a very warm welcome to The Evidence from the BBC. This series is produced in collaboration with Welcome Collection and we're here in the reading room in London with a live audience. Now today we're going to explore allergies, something that affects around one in five of us globally and more than one in three of us in high income countries. Um, and I wonder uh, from the audience here how many people here have an allergy. Now, since a show of hands isn't brilliant on the radio, um, I'm wondering if you could cheer if you have an allergy or, or maybe booing would be more appropriate. So if you have an allergy, please boo loudly. Boo. Oh, I'm sorry, that's quite a few of you. And now could you boo if you know someone else who has an allergy? Yeah, that, that, that seemed like um, almost everyone there. So that is, that is a lot of people. Now, obviously, you have chosen to come along today. But you've probably heard a lot in the news about the rise in food allergies as well as in asthma and skin allergies and of the very serious and very tragic cases where this has resulted in someone's death. Now, far more people do have allergies now than 50 years ago, and you might assume that this increase is going to continue. But are allergies still on the rise? And are things only going to get worse? It turns out it's all a bit more complicated, and that's what we're going to unpick today. And later on, we'll be looking at the best ways of preventing and accurately diagnosing allergies, and at the latest cutting-edge research, which does suggest some possible cures on the horizon. And to help me, I have a panel of world-leading experts on the topic, so let me introduce you to our panel for the first part of our show. Paul Turner is consultant paediatric allergist at St Mary's Hospital in London and leads the Food Allergy Desensitisation Programme there, as well as researching severe allergic reactions to food. Carsten Floor is Professor of Dermatology at St John's Institute of Dermatology at King's College London and also a consultant dermatologist at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital and he is particularly interested in eczema. And Professor Sajal Saglani is Director of the Centre for Paediatrics and Child Health at Imperial College London and she also treats children with lung disease and severe asthma at the Royal Brompton Hospital in London. It, it seems like London is one of several centres for this kind of research but I know that you all collaborate internationally. Um, can I ask you which countries you're doing research in or, or collaborating with people doing research, Carsten? I spent time in Vietnam as part of my PhD looking at whether worms 
would protect us from allergic disease, maybe something that we'll talk about later. And I'm, I'm still collaborating with people across the world to understand what drives eczema and its link with allergic diseases, working with people in Africa, South America and East Asia. And Sajal, what about you? So I'm working a lot with people around Europe, not just Western Europe, but Eastern Europe, as we're going to talk about differences with different lifestyles. And Paul? So I actually trained out in Australia, so I've got very strong links there. But I also am involved with the World Allergy Organization. And so we've sort of got a global reach, all five continents, only Antarctica missing so far, in terms of anaphylaxis, both to sort of what's happening and also how better to treat it. So I've mentioned um, food allergies. So we know that some children are, say, allergic to peanuts. And we mentioned asthma. There's also hay fever. And there are allergic reactions in the skin, which can cause eczema. So they seem like such a range of things. So, Paul, an easy question to begin with. What is an allergy? It's not such an easy question. But thank you for the lead-in. So essentially, allergy is when the body overreacts to something that it shouldn't react to. We've got an immune system and that's designed to keep us safe. And for whatever reason, and I'm sure we'll get into it, in a number of people now, the body recognises something that should be completely harmless as being something that should trigger an immune response. And so that might drive a food allergy or it might drive inflammation in the skin or inflammation in the airways, and that results in food allergy or atopic eczema or allergic asthma. And, and Carsten, of course, it all sounds very bad, but it is a, it's a good process that's going wrong, isn't it? We do need this process in the first place. Yeah, I, I mean, so if you think about it in evolutionary terms, the oldest allergic reactions in the world were probably invented by the human body against parasites. And the cells are there to, in this case, kick the parasite out of the gut, or some parasitic infections come across the skin as well, like schistosomiasis and hookworm larvae actually into the human body through the skin. And so what happens in the body when there's a reaction that does go wrong and that's extreme? What's going on there? You've got cells called mast cells that degranulate, and they're full with histamine, and so they're full of balloons packed with histamine, pop open, and then that triggers further chemical reactions that would increase the blood supply to the area in the skin it would cause itching and then it it can cause more severe reactions as well of course dilatation of the blood vessels drop in blood pressure and so on and is that what then leads in the end to anaphylactic shock if people have that yeah and that of course can be very serious yeah absolutely and Sajal your big area of research concerns asthma so what's happening in the body when someone has asthma, is that always allergy-related or only sometimes? So the majority of asthma, especially in children, does tend to be allergy-related. And the commonest thing is, for asthma, it's stuff you breathe in. So house dust, for example, which should be an innocuous agent that doesn't do anything to all of us. People that are susceptible to asthma. So there's something about genetic susceptibility that makes you more prone to have an allergic reaction as well as your environment. So you breathe in something like house dust and there's a reaction in the breathing tubes now rather than the sort of the full lungs, the breathing tubes that's exaggerated and causes inflammation, swelling of the tubes. They become narrow and so breathing in and out becomes extremely difficult, which is what happens in asthma. The challenge for us at the moment, so we're we're fairly good at managing that type of asthma, 
But actually, very young children, children under five, are often not allergic at all and have a manifestation of difficulty in breathing and something that looks like asthma clinically to me as a doctor, but hasn't necessarily been caused by an allergen, but is often caused by an infection. And globally, that's very, very prevalent. And when it is allergic, would it be caused by different things in different countries? You know, you mentioned yeah, dust. Absolutely. So really, really interesting. So in North America or parts of America, I think Tucson, cockroach, is the most common allergen that children are allergic to. They go to school. They seem to have a lot of cockroach allergen in school, and they get really unwell. In Western Europe, house dust is one of the most common allergens that children are allergic to. So absolutely, the types of allergen are very different across the world. What about pets? Yeah, so <laughs> the Brits love cats and dogs, right? <laughs> and a lot of my patients do have pets at home, but actually pet dander is one of the most common things that children can be allergic to and can cause an attack of asthma. The thing is, if you've got the cat at home all the time, often children are fine, but often it takes two things to cause an attack or an asthma attack. So, for example, the cat's there all the time and there's a bit of an allergic reaction in the background, but then they get a cold on top and then there's a big whammy and that can lead to an asthma attack. So it's often hard to convince people that, yes, your child is allergic and they may be well right now, but the next time they get a cold is when there might be a problem and that's why we sometimes say perhaps you shouldn't have the pet that your child's allergic to. Oh, I know. Um, but, but Paul, <laughs> that, that is interesting about which time you have the reaction because I've heard it said you can't have an allergic reaction to something the first time you encounter it. It's going to be the second time or, or, or even later down the line. What, why is that? What happens the first time? So a lot of allergy is caused by a particular antibody. We call it the IgE antibody. It's one of the antibodies that we use for fighting parasitic infections, possibly involving snake venoms, because you've got to think, why does this bit of the immune system exist in the first place? So if you have peanut allergy, your body has made this IgE antibody against peanut, and it's that combination that then triggers the immune response. But you've got to make the antibody first against the peanut. And so the first time, classically, you're exposed that's when you might become what we call sensitized, so the antibody's there, and only afterwards can you then react once you are sensitized. And in some people, you can be sensitized and not apparently reacting for multiple times, days, weeks, even years, and then in mid-childhood or even adulthood, you suddenly have a, an allergic reaction. That's sort of extraordinary, isn't which it? Is weird. In adulthood, you could suddenly have that. Yeah, and it's something that we're struggling to understand how that works. And likewise, sometimes we're pulling our hair out, you know, for instance, with a drug allergy. They've never had this antibiotic before. How have they become allergic? Where, when were they exposed to it? Did it happen when they you know, were inside mum and mum was pregnant and maybe had some antibiotics? You know, so it's not always clear-cut, but... Officially, you can't, for instance, react with an allergic reaction the first time you get stung by a bee or a wasp because you're not yet sensitised. So, Carsten, do we know how it is that somebody becomes sensitised to an allergen? There are different routes. I mean, you can become allergic through the respiratory tract by just breathing the allergen in. So we're talking about cat and dog allergen. Uh, most likely that would happen through the respiratory tract. But we're increasingly becoming aware that allergies can develop through the skin as well. So it seems that somehow the immune system in the skin, and we have 20 billion white cells in our skin that are usually fast asleep. But in eczema, they've woken up for the wrong reasons 
And these cells have got little dendrites, they've got fingers that reach up to the top of the skin surface, and we think they can recognize environmental allergens, and possibly even cat or dog, tree and grass pollen, or even food allergies. So in my patients, very often, if they have hay fever and they're allergic to tree and grass pollen, they will flare where the tree and grass pollen touches their skin as well. And so, Paul, could this explain why it is that people who have eczema are also at higher risk of having food allergies as well? Is this why allergies kind of sometimes go together? Yes, absolutely. And Sejal, is there anything else other than sensitization via the skin and, uh, and obviously, you know, breathing things in that can explain why is it that some people get eczema and asthma and food allergies? Is this about the immune system or yeah. genetics? Or? No, I think it's a bit of everything, but definitely the immune system. Once you're allergic to something, your immune system is on high alert, and the IgE antibody that Paul was talking about is elevated at a baseline in somebody who's susceptible to allergies. And then what can happen is you get exposure to different types of allergens, and your body is just reacting, reacting, reacting every time they see something, not just when it's peanut, not just when it's house dust, oh, and now it's pollen, and now, and that can really result in very severe disease. So the types of children that we see with severe asthma have not just one allergy, they have multiple allergies, and they have multiple allergic diseases. So they're multiply sensitized to cat and dog and pollen and house dust, and they've got eczema, and they've got hay fever, you know, and they've got really severe disease. That so must be really hard to deal with all that. It's a nightmare. It really, really is. And I think, how do you, in a child, expect a child who's got such severe allergies to cope in kind of just going to school, for example, with such a lot going on, with so many different types of treatments to think about, and avoidance as well? Really difficult. Yeah. Well, let's turn to this question of whether allergies are still on the increase. At the end of the 19th century, there doesn't seem to have been much awareness of different allergic diseases. And then the 20th century, they increased dramatically. And it looks as if the big increases in Europe and in North America, they took place at different times for different kinds of allergies. So, Paul, let's start with with hay fever, which was the first allergy epidemic, if you like. And it was first described in 1870. So, why did that start, and why was there then a big increase in, in asthma in the, in the second half of the 20th century? I mean, it's interesting. This has probably been sort of best well described around New York, actually, and the changes in land use as New York gradually got bigger and bigger and bigger, where all of a sudden we're trying to work out how to feed very people living in very large cities, and we're seeing a change in crops being planted, and that, at least around New York, around the 1920s and 30s, we saw associated with a hay fever epidemic there, particularly to ragweeds, a lot of ragweed crops being planted around, and the wind sort of blows it into the city. In Sydney, we used to have these complete waves of mass hay fever at certain times because the city would often be a little bit lower and everything just gets blown in and it's almost like sucked into a funnel. And so that probably explains why hay fever sort of took off around the 90s, 20s, 30s. Around the wartime, obviously, it wasn't such a big focus, but then we began to see an increase in allergic airways disease around sort of the 1950s, 1960s. But trying to unpick the cause of that is very tricky because we're seeing allergic airways disease in terms of hay fever and the upper airways. 
But we're also seeing a change in lifestyle as well. All of a sudden, we've got stuff to do at home. We've got TV sets or sit around the radio. So we're not having to go out and play as much. And our diets are changing and we're eating more. And we're not as active as we used to be. And so there really is, at least to my mind, a big question of how do lifestyle sort of behaviours impact on allergies, how much of airway allergy, for example, is due to allergy in the airway versus us breathing differently because we are less active, we're sitting around more, we can't move as much because, in general, we are getting bigger. So, Gerald, does that make sense to you? You're, I saw yeah, you nodding so there. Yeah. For, for me, the best example of why this is all increasing is a very specific example in North America. So two communities, the Amish community and the Hutterite community, so genetically very similar, all kind of originally from Northern Europe have migrated to America. In America, living very, very similar lifestyles other than one big difference. The Amish practice farming in a very traditional cattle farming way and the Hutterites have industrialized modernized farming. The Amish have a fourfold lower prevalence of asthma than the Hutterites who have exactly the same prevalence of asthma as the North American indigenous population. So there's something about urbanization, the way we're living that really has impacted the kind of increase in asthma prevalence and something about our environment and what we're breathing in that's really important. And with those studies then, do you think it's something about living near the cattle? I mean, is, is it yeah, literally something about the cattle's Really important, themselves? yes. What, what so, is it? So it's the mums during pregnancy, after birth, while breastfeeding, having the babies in their carry cot right in those kind of cattle farms and cattle sheds that's really critical in that prevention. So you can measure the farm dust in the houses of the Amish and the Hutterites, and the Amish farm dust is very similar to what's in the cattle sheds. Hutterites are very, very different because they're away from the farm and it's all industrialised farming. And have you seen that elsewhere in the world as well, when it, with the children yeah. growing up on, on farms? And not just, yeah. I assume just visiting a farm doesn't do, you've got to grow no. up on it. No, oh gosh, no. So that's why I said before pregnancy, during pregnancy, after birth, and throughout really, really important. And in fact, what we know is is that persistent exposure is really critical to achieving the protection. We know that from several studies. And there's there's a really nice example in Europe where I'm sure most of us are aware that Eastern, Western Germany used to be very, very separate. Eastern Germany, very traditional. Western Germany, a very modern environment. And again, the prevalence of asthma and allergy is extremely different in Western Germany. And Eastern Germany, when the wall came down, everything started to suddenly become very, very similar. So Bavaria, Eastern Germany, we get farm dust from there to use in our experiments to understand what's the protective factor that helps those children so that we can bring that farm dust to our patients and try and somehow protect them. So I'm picturing you now with this lab full of jars of different farm absolutely, dust. Absolutely, you're the absolutely place. right. Yes. And, and then you're <laughs> that's working the kind out of what's, world in, I'm in. what's in it. Like, is it, is it bacteria that's in it well, that yeah. seems to be helping? Or So that's a really interesting question. It's like, yes, it's the farm dust, but we can't make our kids breathe in just you know a whole lot of farm dust what is it about it so we're gradually getting to understand what it is but we know that the farm dust contains lots of dead bacteria microbes 
And there are specific bacteria that we've used in our experiments that seem to be extremely protective. But again, we don't want our kids to be breathing in dead bacteria because breathing in dead bacteria may protect you from asthma but may cause other <laughs> things that your body doesn't, you know, because your body's going to react in a different way. So it's really getting down to the specifics of what it is about the bacterial cell wall, the dead bacterial cell wall that causes the protection. So that might be bacteria. And, and, and Carsten, you've been looking at whether living with certain parasites might be beneficial in terms of allergies. So do countries where there are more parasitic infections have fewer allergies? Yeah, definitely, especially in the countryside where the parasites are common. And that story started in Japan in the late 1960s, early 1970s. Japan has got very detailed preschool medical examinations and that data was published in the 1990s showing that there was a quite rapid decline in tuberculosis and gut worm infections in Japan as people were adopting a completely different lifestyle and Japan was going through a rapid phase of industrialization and then the allergies started going up and up and up and then reached a plateau but that's where I then got really interested and went to Vietnam where in the countryside people had never even heard of the term asthma, they'd never seen a child with eczema and they didn't know what hay fever is but if you go to an pediatric emergency department in downtown Saigon there are loads of people wheezing and there's lots of eczema and there's loads of food allergy as well. But of course parasitic infections themselves can have serious consequences and so people are often treated with deworming tablets. Does that then change their likelihood of whether they would get allergies? Would they then be more likely to have allergies because the worms have been treated? Yeah, so, so we ran a, a randomised control trial in children in the countryside in Vietnam where there were the parasites, removing the parasites by giving them tablets that killed the worms or giving them placebo tablets so they looked like the deworming tablets but weren't. And there was a significant increase in being allergic, so cockroaches again, like in North America and Vietnam with a main allergen than house dust mite, in the group that lost the parasites, the sensitization to those allergens went up compared to the control group. And then there was a study in Uganda as well. Yeah, so that was also very interesting. So colleagues of mine were looking at what would happen if you remove parasites from mums during pregnancy. The World Health Organization was really interested in this work because they were worried that vaccination responses in babies is lower if the mums or the babies are infected by parasites. But they also looked at allergic diseases and they found that in the group of mums who were living in this parasite endemic area where there's loads of hookworm around, if they were treated with the worm treatments, then there was a two and a half times increased risk of developing eczema by two years in that group compared to the group that didn't receive the deworming tablets. So really proving that concept. But it's tricky, isn't it? Because there are real downsides of having the parasites. Yeah, that's true. Not all parasites are that bad. And it really seems that we need them as human beings and that that is an important factor why they have become, allergies have become so common. Worms used to exist in the UK as well until just after the Second World War when farming practices changed in the way that made worm infections in humans much less likely. Well, later on, we're going to be looking at whether deliberately infecting people with hookworms, a certain sort of parasite, might be the answer. So, Jean, I'm wondering if you could do something similar with lungs. Could you somehow give people certain microbes to prevent them from developing asthma? So lots of trials being done at the moment to really understand that. And at the moment, the compounds that are being trialled are not inhaled, but they have given orally to children, and they're mixed bacterial lysates. So they're the dead bacteria that we think 
are protective, made into the equivalent of a capsule, mixed, and then they're taken by children. And I guess what they do is they go into the gut, and we know that there's some evidence of a link between the immune system in the gut and the lungs, because there's food allergy and there's asthma, right? So there's some communication And that's thought to be the way in which those mixed bacterial lysates might work as a protective treatment. The evidence at the moment, though, is that predominantly they're helping the very young children, who I said at the beginning tend to get the symptoms with infections. Then we haven't really got excellent evidence that they're very good for allergic asthma or allergic disease. And so what we're working on now is to see if they're given as an inhaled compound, might it be more effective but we don't know what that compound is yet and we're still very much looking into that yeah, yeah clever idea we'll be interested to see where that gets well thank you Sajal Saglani for joining us from Imperial College London we are breaking for the BBC News now but I'll be back with professors Paul Turner and Carsten Floor to discuss whether the rise in food allergies has already reached its peak and what can be done to prevent and even cure allergies I'm Claudia Hammond and I'll be back soon with the evidence from the BBC Hello, I'm Claudia Hammond. Welcome back to Welcome Collection in London, where I'm with a live audience for the evidence from the BBC. Now, we're exploring allergies, which can be hugely stressful and even frightening for everyone concerned. And we're asking what has caused the epidemic of food allergies and how to best test for allergies and treat them. Now, two doctors who see patients with allergies every day here in London are still with us. Paul Turner from St. Mary's Hospital and dermatologist Carsten Floor from Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospital. And I also want to welcome Alexandra Santos, who's Professor of Paediatric Allergy at King's College London and an honorary consultant at the Evelina London Children's Hospital. Now, I want to start with food allergies, which we've only really touched on so far. And Alexandra, people might have heard about some of the more common food allergies, like allergies to um, peanuts or milk or eggs. But what are some of the more unusual allergies you're seeing these days? Thank you. Thank you for having me. There are some new allergens that we are seeing related to new foods that have come into our diet. So things like insects or corn or mealworms. But also another allergy that's been sort of very trendy in the allergy world is alpha-gal allergy, for example. So this can cause hives, exacerbation of asthma, um, vomiting, diarrhea, and and full-blown anaphylaxis, but actually manifests a few hours after exposure to red meat. And the most interesting is that sensitization, so the development of the allergy antibodies against this alpha-gal, occurs through tick bites. So this is obviously not so common in London. I don't quite see it in my own practice very much, but there are obviously tick endemic areas all around the world. It's very common in the US, in Germany, for example, in South Africa. There are studies from these regions. And so it's the the ticks that have got this protein in the saliva, and they uh, inject this in the body, and some people develop antibodies against alpha-gal. In the beginning, it was quite difficult to understand this allergy because it manifested as an immediate uh, type allergic reaction but actually it happened only a few hours later which is unusual because immediate type allergic reactions as the name says usually happen within minutes up to one hour typically after exposure to the allergen. And Paul I wonder um, when it was that food allergies first started to be an epidemic in Europe and in North America and and you often hear that food allergies are are, are really really on the increase but have they plateaued When, when was the big big rise if you like? If we look at the actual evidence that's there, it's difficult to say. What we do know is almost certainly in high-income countries, the increase happened 20-odd years ago, and it's not continuing now. 
But more recently, we're increasingly seeing what we call non-Ig antibody type food allergies or well, non-immediate food allergies. And so these are food allergies that present in different ways. They don't present with itchy skin and potentially breathing issues and possible problems with the blood pressure, which is obviously everyone's worst nightmare. Instead, they present with stomach problems, diarrhea. If they're very bad, it can affect growth in children. Probably most milk allergy in babies is this sort of what we call this non-IgE, this non-immediate type food allergy. And a lot of those allergies, the kids will outgrow. So by the time they start to year two, three years of age, they've almost all outgrown those. But in terms of increasing, we now have data from the UK, from America, from Australia, that in those higher income countries, we've reached a peak probably about 20 years ago. And the rates are trickling up. But if you imagine you have a bucket of water, and every single year you add a glass of water in, the bucket will gradually fill up. But the glass isn't changing in size. So the proportion isn't any bigger exactly. of, the, of the babies who've got allergies. But because new babies are born and there are more people, the overall number exactly. will carry on growing. What we're scared about, though, is what's happening in low to middle income countries. And that's really the crucial thing now, because we're seeing a lot of evidence, for instance, particularly in China, of a Western lifestyle, Western diet suddenly becoming much more desirable. And we're also seeing the onset of food allergies as those countries adopt a more Western-type diet. And so there is a concern, are we going to see an epidemic in those countries, even though things seem to be levelling off in Europe, in North America, in Australia? But what explains the big increase then towards the end of the 20th century in food allergies? What was going on? Why was there more? If I knew, I'd be a very popular person and it would, I would have to wait years and years to be interviewed on the BBC. We're still struggling. We're still struggling to work it out. I think one of the themes that unites, whether it's asthma, whether it's eczema and, and, and parasites, whether it's food allergy, whether it's hay fever, it's this concept of the immune system going to school. And if we can school the immune system the right way, whether that's farm dust because that's how they, where they're growing up in, in, in the cot, or it's parasitic infections, the immune system learns how to regulate itself. But if we have changed that process because we're no longer living in farms or we're no longer exposing our kids to all the bugs in the environment or we've got smaller families, so our siblings aren't not so many siblings being viruses home from school and so on, or we're using soaps and washing up liquids and detergents that killed 99.9999% of germs or whatever it may be, the immune system doesn't learn how to regulate itself. And that is probably a unifying theme over why we are seeing this increase in all sorts of allergies in younger kids over the last 20, 30 years. And Carsten, I was thinking then about you saying how people can develop food allergies through things getting in actually through the skin. Are we washing our children more? Is that, is that a problem? Is the skin too clean and letting too much in? Are we too clean? We probably are. So frequent washing is one aspect of that, using detergents that might have a bad effect on the skin barrier, making it more leaky. I think one of the reasons why allergies have plateaued is this gene-by-environment interaction that we mentioned earlier. And it's only the people who are genetically predisposed, in this case to an impaired skin barrier, 
who then get on top the pollution, the dietary changes, you know, the environmental changes, they are the people who will develop, for instance, eczema. But if you don't have those genes that make you more likely to have a leaky skin, dry skin, then even if you are exposed to the environmental factors, you will not develop eczema. And Alexandra, your research is looking at how to improve the diagnosis of food allergy. What is the current standard way of diagnosing it? Do you give people the food and see what happens? That's the best test we have. We call it an oral food challenge. So it's actually bringing the patients to the hospital and feeding them the food that we are suspecting they are allergic to, starting with very small amounts and monitoring very closely. And isn't that scary? I mean, they may have anaphylaxis. I mean, that's scary, isn't it? Yes, that's right. So, you know, a proportion of of patients, of course, if we are referring the right patients, will react. And the severity of allergic reactions is unpredictable. And these tests also involve a lot of resources. So not all allergy clinics, not all countries can actually offer such such a test and they are very stressful for patients. So we try to reserve challenges for patients that we are not sure whether they are allergic or not based on other tests. And so the other tests are looking for IgE antibodies to the specific allergen. And of course, I should have mentioned this before anything, actually talking to the patient is the most important thing. So we need to really know what they have reacted to, go through all the possible and common allergens to see whether they're actually eating this food, whether they're exposed and they don't have any symptoms, or if they have any symptoms, what kind of symptoms and so on. This is really the most important element. But then we look for evidence of IG to the allergens to back that up. So you're looking at a blood test to see if those antibodies are there. Yes, that's right. In a blood test or as a skin test as well. So we can put a drop of the allergen on the skin and prick through gently to allow the allergen to penetrate the skin. And then we have a wheel and flare response, which is the result of the skin prick test. So either that or Ig in a blood test. And then if the history together with this information is enough for us to know whether the patient is allergic or not, that's great. If not, if it's still equivocal because the history is not very clear or or the results are not very convincing, or they contradict each other, then we have to do an oral food challenge. And it's important that we are able to offer this to patients if we are seeing patients with possible food allergy, because leaving patients in doubt is actually, by default, diagnosing them with an allergy, which comes with a lot of burden. Because they've got to keep away from those foods. Because they have to avoid the food, and with all the social restrictions and all the stress that that can cause. And Paul, how accurate are these tests? Because isn't it the case that some people will, will test positive, but they may not have the symptoms? So this comes back to understanding the difference between sensitization, having the antibody, and then actually reacting. And there are lots and lots of people who have the antibody and they don't react. And then at some stage, something changes and they switch into reaction mode. And we're still struggling to understand what it is that makes that switch. Likewise, so, would, so wouldn't tests then to overdiagnose people? So it does do. And that's why we have this typical sort of scenario that if you just rely on blood tests or skin testing, you will overestimate how common food allergy is. The risk that we see, and I think we're beginning to see a lot of this, is that people will go and get allergy tests done in bulk and they'll come back with a whole long list of positive antibody tests. And then what we're seeing is they get told, oh, you're allergic, you better stop. And then they stop and they switch from just having the antibody to then actually being allergic. So we have this sort of scenario where we touched on already, you can be sensitized, but as long as you're exposed to the cat still or the pet at low grade levels, you're okay, you're almost treating yourself. But if something changes, if that exposure changes in some way, or you're eating peanuts and you've got the peanut antibody, 
you're not reacting. But if you suddenly stop eating peanut because you become pregnant or you're breastfeeding or you're a baby and you're worried about your sibling has peanut allergy or alternatively, you're a parent of a baby and you tell your sibling, stop eating peanut because now I've had a baby and I don't want them to be peanut allergic, the sibling develops the peanut allergy because they stop. The body has lost the teaching the schooling, it stops going to lessons, it starts learning how to regulate itself and it switches into allergy. So are you trying to develop better tests for all of this? That's right. So we've been working on other tests and one of them is uh, the basophil activation test, which looks at the cells in the blood called basophils, which are one of the cells that are responsible for allergic reactions. And then we look in a test tube whether they react or not. So trying to minimize the number of challenges we need to do. And we have shown that this test is uh, more accurate than measuring IgG levels. So because we are not only detecting the presence of these IgG antibodies, but actually seeing whether they are able to make the basophils respond and and react. Now, when it comes to preventing people from developing allergies in the first place, I mean, Alexandra, in the UK and in some other countries, parents used to be told not to give babies and toddlers anything with peanuts in and to to avoid them developing allergies. But did that advice turn out to be wrong in the end? Yes, that's right, which is sometimes embarrassing to explain that we used to do something and now we do it completely different. But, yeah, so the evidence has taken us this way. So now there have been studies, for example, the LEAP study that I was involved in, led by my colleagues at King's College London, where babies at high risk of developing peanut allergy were randomized to either start eating peanut from that early age, as early as four months, four to 11 months, or told to avoid, which were the recommendations at the time. And they, they continued to eat peanut, the ones that were told to eat peanut, up to the age of five. And consumption led to an 81% reduction in peanut allergy. So these and other studies have changed our practice and now we recommend introducing allergenic foods at the time of introducing other solid foods, ideally between the age of four and six months, not later than six months. So our practice has changed as a result of, of this research. And that's not whole peanuts, presumably? Yes, please don't introduce whole peanuts before the age of three because there's the risk of choking or inhaling whole peanuts, but we should do it in an age-appropriate way. So that is the advice here now, but Paul, would that depend on where you live and what rate of allergy there is in that country. Absolutely. And and actually, it applies even if we just think about the UK, that if your diet naturally includes peanuts, fine, go for it. That's the right thing to do. But we have to remember lots of countries now are a complete mosaic and mishmash of people with different cultures, different backgrounds, different dietary backgrounds, because that's a key feature of ethnicity. And if it's not a normal part of your diet and you're going to struggle to keep it up, the risk is that you're going to stop the peanut or whichever the food is and therefore actually become allergic. And I remember, you know, I've got colleagues in Greece who uh, go, what are you talking about feeding babies peanut? Are you crazy? You know, if you did that in Greece, we would see loads of peanut allergy. And the reason is that peanuts don't feature in general as a major food in Greece. And therefore, if suddenly introduced lots of peanuts in the environment, we would potentially be exposing lots of people through the skin to peanut, driving an unusual immune response so they become allergic, and it could actually increase peanut allergy rather than decrease it. So I think the crucial thing, it has to be matched to what the family's diet is in the context of the country that they're living in as well. Yeah, it is very complicated, isn't it? So you've got to carry on eating that thing or being exposed to that thing. Now, Carsten, another line of attack uh, to try to prevent people developing allergies would be to 
stop them getting in through the skin, so to improve that skin barrier, if you like. And there have been studies on this using moisturisers. What, what have they done? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, if you think about our skin like a wall with bricks and mortar, the people have the main genetic factors that drive eczema have less mortar between the bricks. So we thought, why not use moisturisers? Literally from day one after birth, if we put the mortar back in regularly, you can prevent eczema. And there were a couple of studies suggesting exactly that. And then we ended up doing a much larger study called the BEEP study, the Berry Enhancement Eczema Prevention Study that recruited almost 1,500 babies in several centres across the UK using moisturisers in high-risk babies, the ones that had a family history of eczema. What did we find? Nothing, unfortunately. It didn't prevent eczema. But because we thought if you prevent eczema, thinking about this, sensitization through the skin, we might be able to prevent food allergy as well. We looked at food allergy as another outcome in the BEEP study. And we did another study in a study called EAT, which actually also was a food allergy prevention study that as a secondary uh, thing. We had data on eczema and the uh, amount of moisturizers being applied to the skin in that study. And we showed that the more frequently you moisturize the baby, the higher the risk of food allergy by three years of age, and that got us really worried, thinking, well, That's maybe really extraordinary, it's, it? it's the contamination of the hands of the parents who are putting the moisturizer onto their child's skin without washing their hands. That's actually driving that food allergy signal. This is extraordinary, really. Does that mean parents should be put off, you know, touching their babies so much? You know, we hear how skin-to-skin contact is really good, and there's people going to baby massage and uh, massaging their baby's bare skin. Is that bad, then? No, I I, I really don't want people not to be in contact with their babies. It's so important having that in in early life. And massaging will have a lot of very beneficial effects. I think it could be something very simple, just washing your hands before you put the moisturizer on. And whether it's baby massage, it would be an oil. If it's a child with eczema and dry skin, it's important to use the moisturizers. So let's look at um, treatments now. Now, one kind of treatment is to desensitize people very gradually to the thing they're allergic to. I mean, this is very involved, isn't it, Paul? It's not something you do at home. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's not easy and it's not straightforward. And we've learnt over the last sort of five or ten years that this has suddenly become a bit more vogue, at least in sort of cutting-edge research and in some clinical centres now, that there's a big burden there and in some ways we can make things worse and it requires a daily dose it requires you to come into hospital every couple of weeks as well your risk of having anaphylaxis is quite a bit higher if you're on one of these treatment programs than actually if you're avoiding the food you're allergic to and so we're trying to work out how best to talk to families and importantly talk to children when it's children involved is this the right option for you it's not a cure we can make your allergy far more mild But there's a cost involved. There's a downside that it's going to limit your lifestyle and so on. And at the end of the day, it needs to be a shared decision amongst everyone. Is this what you want to do? Is this the right thing for you? And it works about 60-70% of the time. But around 20% of people will have to stop because of side effects. Another 10 or 20% will get through but not have a completely good outcome. They'll be slightly desensitised but not as desensitised as we would like. And then do they keep it up? Because what I'm finding, particularly for instance, peanuts, a very strong taste. The kids I've desensitised hate peanut, 
hate peanut. I know we can't do product placement, but there's a peanut snack that's covered in chocolate that people love and, and they will put up with it. But then I found that two years down the line, those kids now hate chocolate because they associate chocolate with the food they're allergic to. I know your face is that going terrible. terrible. <laughs> yes. I feel the same way. And so, you know, if they need to have this food on a regular basis for two, three, four years, maybe even longer, is this something that they actually want to sign up to? So we need to get that right at the start. And what about the new uh, drug treatments? I mean, there are treatments like monoclonal antibodies, aren't there? Is that, is that an easier alternative? Depends on how you call easy. So, I mean, the gold standard for me for treatment would be to desensitise someone while they're on one of these new monoclonal antibodies that reduces their risk of reaction. But the effect of the monoclonal antibody only works as long as you're taking it. Do kids want to have a two-weekly or four-weekly injection? Can a health system afford that? I mean, the UK apparently is a high-income country. We can't afford that in our health service. How can other health services afford that as well? So I'm personally not convinced that we're going to suddenly see monoclonals coming into routine treatments for bog-standard allergies. I think there's a role in people with a very severe food allergy, in much the same way we're seeing a role for these monoclonals in severe asthma or severe eczema. But I think as a common treatment, I think we're still a long way off. And Carsten, there is another completely different approach. You were telling us earlier about the, the babies of women who hadn't had deworming treatment having a different uh, lower risk of eczema. And there was a trial conducted in Nottingham in the UK where people were deliberately infected with hookworms to see whether that would help um, with their asthma. Did it work? Yeah, that was very exciting. The problem was that people in the UK who are naive to hookworms, they're not like Vietnamese children running around the, the, the rice paddies uh, with their bare feet where the hookworm larvae would go into the body through the skin from early life again and again and building up quite a high amount of hookworm in the body. These people from Nottingham would not tolerate more than 50 larvae, whereas a Vietnamese child would have thousands of hookworms in their guts. So when you say they wouldn't tolerate them, it would make them ill? Absolutely. They had tummy upset, diarrhea, they were feeling nauseous all the time. And that was probably why, unfortunately, we didn't see any improvement in asthma and hay fever, no matter how we looked at the data in that cohort of people in Nottingham. I think what would, in reality, have to happen is you'd have to do a study like that in pregnant women in the UK and give them, infect them with hookworm larvae, not something that would go down very well, I suspect. I suspect not, yeah. Is there any way of working out what it is, I don't know, within the hookworms, so that you don't give people whole hookworms and don't infect them? Could you get out whatever it is, the active stuff? Yeah, the very clever creatures sitting there in the human guts, their saliva is full of interesting chemicals that tone down the immune response of the human gut cells against the worm trying to kick out the worm and yeah there's a lot of research that suggests that some of those molecules can reduce the allergic reaction that's targeted against the worm but uh, we're not in the stage of where we've actually got the golden bullet drug from hookworm saliva yet and maybe it's actually not just one molecule but it's the mix it's the cocktail from the hookworm that we need so what would you say the future looks like, Carsten? What sort of lifestyle could we lead deliberately to try to avoid developing allergies? Go into a cow shed a lot, 
get a dog maybe what yeah, else you'd, be in you'd the countryside like to, you know you'd like to live on an alpine farm probably you'd, you'd want to have you know very nice clean air we haven't talked much about pollution but there's actually some evidence that um, air pollution um, changes through changing the genetic material inside of the womb of the mum, the baby's immune system, and skewing the immune system more towards an allergic, what we call phenotype, so the tendency to develop allergies. So you want to be in a clean, nice clean air, um, you know, you can see the Alps in the background already, I'm, I'm sure, uh, having close contact with farm animals, that clearly seems to be very important, having a really fresh, diverse diet, and feeding your offspring those potentially allergenic foods from early on rather than exclusively breastfeeding for long periods of time. Well, thank you for that. Let's take some um, questions from our audience now. Do put your hand up if you'd like to ask a question. Yes, there's one just, just here. Hello. Um, I was reading a paper the other day that suggested that the high chronic insulin levels in Western countries caused by a diet of ultra-processed foods leads to chronic inflammation, which can then in turn make things like allergies, asthma, eczema worse. Um, do you like, agree with that? What are your thoughts on that? Paul? I think there's a real concern there. We are seeing some evidence that just like a breakdown in the skin barrier seems to be a problem, not just for eczema, but leading to food allergy and so, and so on, that there is different gut barrier function that's impacted by what we eat, independent of allergies, particularly for this non-IG, non-immediate type food allergy. And there is no doubt that certain foods and certain diets are more likely to cause low-grade ongoing inflammation and upset the function of the gut in keeping bad stuff out and good stuff in, that might be by, you know, affecting the sort of friendly bugs, as we call them, the microbiome that are living in the gut naturally anyway. But I fundamentally think we're at the beginning of understanding the full picture and it's not doing any good to sort of rush to conclusions. I think there's enough data to show that eating ultra-processed foods is not great for you. And if you're going to do it, you need to balance it by having other foods that aren't ultra-processed, everything in sort of moderation. I, I think we have to be careful about jumping to conclusions. But at the same time, actually, eating healthy is good. So let's try and encourage a healthy diet as much as possible. We don't need to wait to see what the risks and the harms are. Alexandra, would you agree with that? Yes, I mean, I agree with Paul. And I think that, you know, epidemiologically it makes sense because uh, some of the changes that we've seen in our diet that have accompanied the rise in allergy and in particular in food allergy has, you know, also um, in the same timeline. So we also have observed an increase in processed foods and, you know, in the consumption of ultra-processed foods. So it makes sense. And the other thing that, you know, conceptually makes sense is that, you know, we are eating ultra-processed foods, which involves like chemicals and modification of foods together with allergens, and they are going like together to the gastrointestinal tract, so to our gut. And so actually they could also be sort of facilitators of changes in the way the immune system sees the food. So I think there's a lot of like, you know, interesting observations that can motivate research. I think the evidence and understanding exactly what's happening, it's not there yet. So I, I agree with Paul. 
Thank you for that. I've learnt a lot today, and I hope you have too. And where allergies are concerned, it does, it does seem as though there are still a lot of mysteries to be solved. But thank you so much to our panel, Alexandra Santos, Carsten Floor, and Paul Turner, and earlier, Sejal Seglani. And this show is made in collaboration with Welcome Collection. And thank you to the producer, Helena Selby, and our studio engineers today, Chris Banner and Alan Zani. And thank you to all of you for listening, whether you are here in the audience at Welcome or wherever in the world you are. I'm Claudia Hammond, and to hear more on global health, do listen out on the BBC World Service every Wednesday and Thursday for Health Check. Bye for now. 